What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Planeswalkers Anonymous, the magic podcast that sees the writing on the wall. And if you or anyone else shares our obsession with companions like Omori the Collector or Zerda the Dawn Waker, we are here for you. We won't rehabilitate Who's that you, one? but we'll have a lot of fun. I'm Duncan, begrudgingly admitting that companions are stupid powerful. So, Donovan, what companion will you be using? Also, what did you say while I was doing the intro? I missed that. It looked like you were intentionally picking companions that people don't play with. <laughs> but you named one of the ones that people don't play with, and I was like, I don't remember which one that one is. Oh, well, I guess that sort of is a follow-on fact from the, the criteria I was using, which was ones that we hadn't ever mentioned on the show before. So Yeah. Oh, that one. That one probably is pretty cool in Commander. But I don't know if it would be good as a companion, just like I think it would be probably a good card in a commander deck it makes activated abilities that aren't mana abilities cost two less to activate it's yeah like you know I actually makes think infinite that... mana with basalt monolith yeah also or grim monolith i guess if you want to do that yeah i think that actually could be cool uh, depending on i'd have to you know like look and see what cards are available in like standard or pioneer or whatever but i mean that seems like that would be really strong okay, if you built you built a say pretty much all creatures and land deck but all of your creatures had an ability and those abilities were all incredibly cheap. It seems like that would be good, right? Yeah. I mean, it could be cool in, like, a adapt deck in Standard right now. Yeah. I tried playing a deck with a guy in it that lets you adapt your guys again and also makes your activated abilities cost too less. And it was pretty cool. But I didn't always have that guy. And so sometimes my stuff cost too much. And also sometimes I just had, you know, just that guy and no guys that had adapt. <laughs> so. Yeah. I don't know, maybe attaching it to a companion would be good, but that is a blue-green mechanic, and this is a red-white card. Can but it is red-white hybrid, so you really just need a three-color deck, which uh, Ikoria is designed to let you do, so... Yeah, seems very doable, I just... Yeah, it might be interesting. But, as to what companion I am likely to play, still probably gotta be Luris of the Dream Den as my favorite, but I did crumble and I put Yorion as my companion for my Rampage of the Clans deck. Seems and smart. I won the only match I played with it. So maybe it's good. Yeah. So I mean, maybe the deck's good. I'm apparently the card is. I was good. gonna say maybe should, been proven wrong there. Maybe but. we should talk about this later. But uh, I'm noticing companion just as a mechanic is so strong that like, it pretty much all formats, like all the way back to like legacy and stuff. Decks are just like, yeah, we're gonna just manipulate our deck a bit, add a companion, and now we have a powerful card that we're guaranteed to have at any time, right? It's just the yep. cost for adding it turns out to be so low that pretty much every deck is running a companion now in every format, and there's only 10 companions. So that says to me either you're going to have to like ban all 10 companions at some point, or they're going to have to print a lot more companions so that play across all formats doesn't become homogenized. Yeah. And I don't... I don't think they're going to want to ban all 10 companions or whatever. And I really don't want them to just start making companions every set, like the new Planeswalkers. You know, like, okay, we added Planeswalkers in Lorwyn or whatever, and ever since they've had to print, not had to, but they, they print Planeswalkers in every set, and almost every deck has at least a Planeswalker in it, you know? I feel like I'm worried companions are going to go that way, where every set from now on is going to have some companions in it, and every deck in all of Magic has to have a companion. Uh, I don't think that that's going to be the case. I think that it's 
prevalence in Eternal formats is more because it's shiny and new right now. You think so? I think that it is good and there will be companion decks in Eternal formats, but I don't believe that it's going to be the only thing. I do really believe that these deck building restrictions are restrictive and can matter, especially the more powerful the format is, the worse it is, I think, for you to make your deck worse. And so I think that there you can very much build decks that you play these cards in and then be good, but I don't think that that's going to for, be the best deck to play all the time. And I think that um, a lot of these cards are just being played right now because people are trying it and it's cool and it's fun. Okay, well, we'll see, right? I do think that this is a powerful mechanic and it seems like there probably will just be decks that have companions are just going to be part of the meta now. But Well, I hope you're right because, well, I, w- I wouldn't have a problem with them just banning all 10 commanders in all eternal formats, say. That would be yeah. fine with me. But I don't see that happening. No. And I really like I really don't want them to just start making companions a regular thing. Anyone who listens to us regularly is probably tired of hearing me say I don't like companions, right? So I won't get into it. But I will say I don't like them. So I hope that that doesn't just become the next thing where like every set has <laughs> a companion or two. Yeah. But that's that's enough of me complaining about companions. I said at the very outset of this podcast that we were Breaking down and admitting companions were the thing. I'll get off my <laughs> soapbox. And uh, what's been going on with you, Donovan? Not a whole lot. I didn't quite make Mythic last season. Oh, no. you get there this season. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm already platinum, so that's cool. Nice. A lot earlier than I usually do that. So What's going on with Boardwalker? So we had some issues with opening and the city regulations and stuff, but we figured it all out. And starting today, we're open for curbside pickup from noon to eight o'clock through this week and then next week we'll open up the door so that people are allowed to actually come in nice so limited people in the store not going to be hosting events stuff like that right if any of our listeners are in the dfw area though i definitely encourage you to swing by boardwalk and kind of our partner with this podcast and we definitely want you to get back in there and support them now that they're opening back up we want to be able to keep our local stores open and you know if you shop somewhere else you should go by there too if they're open do you want to talk about some of the magic news sure thing your daily newspaper you mentioned that boardwalk's not going to be running any events even when the doors get opened up for the time being and that plays right into what we've heard from the Wizards Play Network this last week, right? Yeah, Wizards is still suspending events. Yeah, they've extended their suspension up to June 1st for the time being. I think everyone's kind of playing it by ear with that sort of thing, though, so while they say June 1st at the moment, it will not be surprising if we hear more extensions and stuff like that. It's not what we want, but a lot of the medical professionals and stuff are saying they think that we'll probably be seeing self-quarantine efforts continuing through the summer yeah so yeah whatever form those take they may be relaxed some in the upcoming months and that'll be great and maybe we will get to play some events this summer or this fall at least but at the moment i am just pointing out that they say june 1st but you know you may want to keep an eye out on it it could very well get extended beyond that yep but in the meantime if you are looking for some magic content you should listen to this podcast but since you're already doing that, I guess I'll also point out that the Magic Esports YouTube page has created a whole bunch of new shows. Yeah, like weekly shows to bring you Magic content. 
Have you checked this out, Donovan? I looked over their article announcing this stuff, and it looks pretty good. I think that the Advantage Bar, at least, is one that I think I'm going to be interested in watching. Yeah, so that's going to be um, every Friday, right? What is, what is that one? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a discussion of the standard metagame, and I kind of wish, you know, before doing the episode today, I'd actually looked into this and watched the episode from last week, just because oh, yeah. then I'd have more knowledge, because it looks like knowledgeable people covering stuff that's happened, you know? So yeah, it'd I think be kind of good for me. I recognize Cedric Phillips. He's apparently one of yeah. the hosts on that show. But that's that's Friday. And it's like they've almost got a show for every day of the week, though not yeah. quite. It's like uh, Mondays, they're doing profiles, which is, you know, just profiles on pro players. So pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, and it's got Rich Hagen doing that one. Yeah, and he's pretty cool. And then on Tuesday, they're doing Outside Notes, which is Marshall Sutcliffe, the host of so, Limited Resources. Marshall like Sutcliffe it. doing a limited strategy guide. Yeah. So... Probably right in his wheelhouse. Right. It seems like almost like just a video companion to limited resources. Although this is, you know, done by Watsi and limited resources is actually a separate thing. Yeah. But same sort of thing there. And then mm-hmm. Wednesday, they've got a show called The Rogue Refinery. Yeah, it's got Alias V and Paul Chion on it. Yep. Which I guess is just, uh, what, they're going to talk about new deck ideas or what's They're going to be talking out? about decks that are not really at the top of the metagame, but are still got some pretty powerful stuff in them, is what it looked like. Okay. To try and kind of give you some ideas of good decks that are not the big decks right now. To give some people some ideas on what to play that they, if they're tired of the regular decks. Sure. And then, like you said, Friday is the Advantage Bar. And then it looks like... Hey, I was trying to say the hosts on all this stuff. Oh, I thought you'd already mentioned them. No, Who, who's the on Advantage it? Bar has five hosts. Well, that's true. And it's got Cedric Phillips, Maria Bartholi, Corbin Hossler, Riley Knight, and Corey Baumeister. And then throughout the week, it looks like Tuesdays through Friday, Becca Scott is going to be hosting the Magic Minute. Just a one-minute breakdown of basically the news from events and the community for Magic Gathering. Uh, delivered in one-minute bursts throughout the week. So, you know, kind of making us pointless. Yeah, no. I know. <laughs> uh, but that's that's what you're getting from the Magic Esports YouTube channel. We'll have a link to that if you guys want to subscribe to that. Um, maybe maybe we should make videos. All of them seems like the thing. If we do that, though, we might need to get some more attractive hosts. I don't know, man. That's really, like, all of the news. we got a pretty big event upcoming on Arena that we wanted to let people know about if they haven't heard of this already is the uh, Red Bull Untapped. And apparently they've done this before, right? Yeah. Like a whole series of events, qualifiers, and then a, a like a big finals event. Yeah. I assume you know more about it than I do, so I was going to let no, you know. No, last time around that. it was invite only, and so I didn't pay attention oh. to it. You could like apply on their website to get invited, and it's like I sent them an application thing, but and they did not get invite it. you. Did you nope. mention that you're a podcast host and a community personality? One of those things wasn't true at the time. It looks like they're just a bunch of qualifier events with the $5,000 prize pool in them, and then the people who uh, proceed get to go to their $200,000 main event, right? Yeah, I think they're having 16 different qualifiers, and some of them are basically open to everyone, and some of them are invite only, and some of them are open to everyone, and some of them are like region locked. But mm-hmm. each of the qualifiers has a $5,000 prize pool, and the finals is like a $200,000 prize pool, plus 
like 200,000 gems on Arena, and, you know, they give away packs and all kinds of extra stuff, right? But that first qualifier event is an international online qualifier. So that's anybody on Arena can do it if they want to. And it's a two-day event. Starting on the 16th. Yeah, starting on May 16th. The deadline to register, though, is May 15th. So you can't show up day of and play. you got to get registered ahead of time. So we'll have a link to registering for that as well. If anyone's interested in doing that, you can just follow our links and we'll help you out there. Yeah. I think, oh, it might, might be worth mentioning that it's a standard Swiss best of three tournament structure. Good to know. Yeah. And they, they've got an FAQ and stuff. If anybody wants to check any of the rest of that out, we'll have a link in our show notes. So I definitely encourage you guys to, to do that if our, any of our listeners manage to win one of these Red Bull qualifier events, you should let us know. Let us know how exactly Give we you helped you to, to get to that victory, right? Because clearly, yeah. clearly it was us, right? Yes. But yeah, it's been been a bit of a slow news week, Don. I think that's it. What do you what yeah. do you say? I want to cover the event from last week. Oh, I skipped the event. <laughs> I noticed that, but I didn't want to mess with the flow. Oh, well, um... What event was going on, Donovan? Apparently, <laughs> even though I put it in the show notes and everything, I totally missed this event entirely. Yeah, we had another uh, Magic Fest online event, as they're doing those weekly. Dude, the Week 2 week championship, championship was won by Oliver 2 on Yorion Jeskai Fires deck. Ugh. Jeskai Fires was bad enough before they decided to make it a companion deck. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting that the Jeskai Fires deck seems to have switched over their companion to be Yorion instead of Karuga. Yeah. But I think Yorion does seem to be better in the deck, and its deck restriction is less punishing, so is it all makes sense. Karuga the fat one? Yep, the Macro Sage. Yeah, that's, that's the one that says you can't play anything cheap. Yep. Whereas... Yorion, something else. Just says you have to play eighty or more cards in your deck. Oh yeah, Yorion says you have to play a giant deck. Is that good? I don't know. I think we mentioned this last week, as you were telling me that it, it's fine. You just play. More I think that would be a lot worse that you want when there were less sets in standard. But with five sets right now, right? Wait, seven sets right now, and then another one coming soon. Yeah, there's enough redundant cards that playing eighty cards is not that hard. Yeah, I guess it's, it's been beaten into me for the last, oh, probably over 20 years now that you don't play more than the minimum required cards. In your you deck. don't, but in this instance, it's letting you start with a powerful card in your hand in addition to your seven cards. Right. So it's, in fact, increasing consistency instead of decreasing it, which is the issue with yeah, playing more fair. cards. Yeah, it's fair. It's, uh, it's like, I don't know. Just sets my teeth on edge, you know. <laughs> Dude, this deck has thirteen planeswalkers in it, yeah. and the yeah. only creature they're playing is Agent of Treachery, which is, you know, by design because they're trying to use Luca to combo into their Agent of Treacheries, and so they don't want any other cards, creatures in their deck to oh, get in the way. Yeah, so they're they're doing the kind of the polymorph thing. Yeah, they're playing. Several sources of creature tokens, but no creatures other than Agent of Treachery, and then they're right. using Luca's minus two ability to turn whatever creature token they have into an Agent of Treachery. Sure. Deal one of your opponent's permanents. Treacherous. 
not only is it stealing stuff from you, but it turns out that soldier token wasn't just a soldier token. He was really a double agent. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, though, because the way this deck is designed, Lucas Plus is really bad. But <laughs> Yeah. But their intent is to minus him a couple times and then use Yorion to reset him instead of having to plus him back up. Sure. Guess they don't ever get to ultimate him, but I guess they don't really want to. Yeah, they don't. His ultimate's not really good if you don't play creatures. So really, he's just a five mana red polymorph. Well, if you've got eighty cards in your deck, you need to have more copies of your agent and treachery. A hell of a lot more, because <laughs> he makes everything else also a copy of agent of treachery. That's the idea. Agent of treachery is the Although biggest baddest does... creature in the standard right now. This is yeah. actually looking at this event. We had second place was Galurus of the Dream Dead companion deck where it was Boros Cycling. Yeah. But other than that one, and then the two Teamer decks in the top eight, we had four Yorion decks, and then we had a uh, a Rakdos Sacrifice deck with Obosh mm -hmm. Companion. And so I think it might be a good uh, meta for the old uh, Hushbringer. Yeah, I think Hushbringer would be good. And it's back to what I was saying earlier. Six of these decks, I guess it's encouraging that there were two decks without companions in the top eight but it's kind of funny that they're both teamer decks yeah even though they're not the same deck <laughs> but six of these decks were companion decks and four of the six were yorion decks so half of this top eight was playing yorion yeah and i think that that speaks to which companions have the you know the worst um restrictions on playing them yeah so i think the ones that let you basically play your deck how you wanted to play it anyways are kind of better. Like the Luris of the Dream Den deck, I've played against that one. I don't think it really plays Luris that much. They're just, it's just kind of there because they, it's very easy to make their deck fit that and then they have that option. Yeah. For the most part, they just cycle through their cards and then play a Zenith Flare to kill you. <laughs> sure. And since their deck is not really based on permanents very much, it's very easy to fit the permanents that are in it to match the requirement on Luris. Mm -hmm. And then, like, the Obosh, the Prey Piercer, and he says you can't play even-costed cards, and so you still get to play your one-drops and your three-drops, which are some of the more key cards. Yeah. And so it uh still works out. And then the Yorion decks, like, they're less consistent, but if you're just putting in more copies of your card than you would normally, you play four instead of three, and you put in some redundant cards that are just kind of similar to another card that you're already playing, like you play some, maybe some time wipes in addition to Shatter the Sky or something like that, then uh, your deck is still pretty similar to the way it was before. You just also get to have this companion. Yeah. So I think the just speaks to which ones are more punishing. Like the Karuga, the Macro Sage one, can draw you a bunch of cards, but he does require you to not have any spells in your deck that converted mana cost is less than three. So your deck is slower. But yeah, I think that's what happened in the event we had Four Yorion decks, which were kind of built around Agent of Treachery. Some of them were playing Jeskai Fires and cheating them out with Luka, Copper Code Outcast. Some of them were just playing Bant Control and using Uro to get their lands into play so they can just cast it. That was what the four Yorion decks were doing. And then we had uh, one copy of Teamer Adventures, one copy of Teamer Reclamation, a copy of Red Black Sacrifice with Obosh, and a copy of Boros Cycling with Lurus. So... Yeah, there was a lot of Yorion, but other than that, pretty diverse top eight, and not all the Yorion decks were even the same deck. So, oh, also I want to mention our uh, yellow hat, old Gabriel Nassif was in the top eight, so that's cool. I like him. Yeah, this week we're gonna have slightly different links on this event. 
because the Channel Fireball coverage page for the online Magic Fest is not any different than it was last week. It, like, it even has the deck lists on it are still the deck lists from last week's top eight. So I have a link from a Channel Fireball article about the championship match that has Oliver 2's deck list, and then I'll also put the the link from... Also, I'm going to put the link to the sign-up page for the Magic Fest, because that also has the old events on it, and that's where you can go if you want to do like I was, where you're going in and actually looking at the decks that people were playing. Okay, that'd be Because there's a standings page where it shows you who got what place, and then there's another page where you can go look at decks, and they're listed by the player's name, so... It is, you don't get to just link from their name to their deck on the standings thing. You have to, like, find their name in the deck list thing. But it's not really that hard if you just want to look up a couple decks. Or if you just want to go in the deck list thing and click through random people's deck lists, you can do that too. Sure. But if you're interested in looking at all the deck lists exactly and who got what played, that's the way you can do that. Seems good. All right, man. Well, uh, normally... After we talk about the events, I suggest that we go into the news, but I managed to jumble things up this week, so I think... Uh, it's a fine time for some finance? Sure. Anyway, that's not that's not really a mustache pun, but I'd, I'll take it. Okay. Are, you, are you trying to move away from the mustache thing? Maybe. I enjoy the mustache. Well, then you can bring it up. All right. You want to give me some finance advice? They didn't even need any money. They had magic cards. Well, I think you would kind of notice that some cards were from Akoria were kind of going up in price, but since there wasn't really any supply of the cards, they weren't they they were just going up. Yeah, I really what it was that I noticed was that you can go on pretty much all of the online retailers for magic cards and order these cards, these big Ikoria cards that are expensive and going up, but you won't get them because physical cards aren't available yet. And I was like, I bet that affects the price. Yeah, and so it, it's probably one of those things that you probably want to watch out when you're purchasing Ikoria cards right now because they're not coming out for, say, when this airs, it'll be about a week till they come out. Yeah. But it actually is probably a good time to kind of look at some of the cards from other sets that go with the Ikoria cards and see what you want to pick up from those. Because... Sure. Their supply is out there, and since people can't buy the Akoria cards, a lot of people just aren't buying cards till they can get their other cards for their deck, you know? Right. So some of the cards that are good with the Akoria cards from the other sets that weren't seeing as much play before might be a good time to pick some of those up yeah. and grab them before they spike too hard with the Akoria stuff. Right. And I figure that we're seeing all these results from online events where Akoria cards are available, like the Companions in particular making a splash on the competitive scene. Yeah. And so I figure as that happens, there's going to be people going like, oh, I'm going to get me some of those for, for my deck when I start playing with my Ikoria cards, right? And so they're ordering them, but since the supply is, well, I was going to say static, but it's not even that. It's non-existent at the moment. Well, if you order them in Japanese, we can get them. Okay. But the retailers, they're not getting any more of them, right? Like, they haven't even got their initial ones yet, so it's just going to keep pushing the price up as people order them, and nobody is out there cracking packs or playing drafts or whatever and opening up these cards who doesn't want them and then going to sell them back or trade them to you, which kind of brings prices back down, you know? Yeah. Not in any dramatic way, but that's that's just part of how the card economy works. 
Yep. People order things from the stores, and that makes prices go up, and people sell things to the stores or trade them to each other, and that helps prices come down. But only half of that equation is happening, right? So, yeah, and so it may be just worth thinking about that when making your purchases right now. Yeah, that and I don't know where anything in particular is going to level out, but some of the Ikoria cards that are really expensive right now are probably going to dip pretty sharply when cards actually come out. I think that's typical with pre-orders, but... I yeah. guess it. But normally we don't have so long a period for um, the established cards to get established. And right. so a lot of the speculation is spread a lot more widely whenever pre orders are happening. Mm-hmm. Whereas right now, I think a lot of the cards that are hyped up are going to be extra hyped because we know which ones are good before the set actually even comes out. Right. Yeah. So, like I said, I don't actually know how that's going to affect card prices, but it's definitely, I think, something worth keeping in mind. Yeah. But. Aside from that, Don, I think it's time for us to take a break, hear a word from our sponsors, and then come back and talk some more about nostalgia and history and the sort of things where I can actually chime in. Yeah, that sounds like a tasty plan. Few things are as comforting as a homemade meal. But when you're sheltering in place, every meal is homemade. It doesn't take long for you to start longing for those food tokens you were used to. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues throughout the multiverse, we at Oko's Bakery and Pond want to do our part to help. That's why we are now offering curbside pickup. And fans of our newest pastry treat, the Spell Crumble, should be especially excited. From now until June 1st, Oko's Bakery will donate one medical mask to first responders for each Spell Crumble sold. Oko's Bakery, now found only at your kitchen table. Limit one mask per purchase. Offer open only while supplies last. Mask currently unavailable. Hmm, Donovan, you know, you, I definitely recommend you trying that spell crumble. It's best if you get it early in the day because when the spells are fresh, that's the best time to get a spell crumble. But generally, spell crumbles require too much mana for you to do them really early on. They do, but. If you just make the extra steps that you need to, to be able to get a spell crumble as early as you can, it is really satisfying. Oh, okay. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Really? As far as taking extra steps to get mana available earlier in your game, it's actually probably the least relevant part of what we were talking about this week, but that comes up on our topic this week. Yeah, we were going to go over the uh, article, Clear the Land in the Fundamental Turn. Yeah, so we go back to our On the Shoulders of Giants episode series, and this week we're going to be talking about an article originally published on The Dojo, as has been frequent for that series. It's one by Zvi Mauschwitz, which some of our listeners may have heard of before, and the actual title of the article is Clear the Land and the Fundamental Turn, because a lot of what he was talking about in the article was the card Clear the Land, but... The real basic principle of magic that this introduced, not necessarily in the minds of the magic populace, but to the conversation about magic, is the concept of the fundamental turn. Yeah. So what that's basically talking about is the turn where you win the game. And not necessarily like the game is over and your opponent has lost, but you take whatever plays or actions it's going to be that make it so that you're going to win. Right. And the reason for that is it's talking a lot about pacing of a game and how you control that and how you need to keep that in mind whenever you're building your deck or 
messing with your sideboard for a matchup or if when you're trying to just analyze a meta and choose a deck to play. Sure. Um, one of the things that it's saying is you need to keep track of when decks win and how you need to combat that if yours is winning later. Yeah, because I think the way this V started out here, like I said, he was talking a lot about cleared land, which isn't going to be all that relevant to us today, but it is a sorcery for a green and two. It says, each player reveals top five cards of their library, puts all land cards revealed this way onto the battlefield tapped, and exiles the rest. And he's talking about that because, apparently, at this time, in, in the year 2000, when he was writing for the dojo, people were asking him to talk about this card because they thought it was a cool, exciting card. And he was like, no, it's bad. And the reason why he thought it was bad is basically because it accelerates both you and your opponent, and he felt like the kind of deck that you would want to play this in just has a later fundamental turn than the rest of the format at the time. And that's the important bit that we were going to talk about, is the fundamental turn. Yeah, and I just think that the Clear the Land, though, does do a good job of representing why this is so important, because... yeah. And maybe I'll get back into that after we talk about the fundamental turn some more. I'll come back to why I think Clear the Land is actually a really good explanation, and his article including that card is actually very good. Sure. What it basically comes down to is every deck has its own fundamental turn, and therefore formats kind of have a fundamental turn. You know, although I think he doesn't get particularly into that. If the fundamental turn for most decks is turn four in standard, then your deck that has a fundamental turn of turn six is not going to be playable in standard. But to understand why, you kind of got to know what the fundamental turn is. And Nami, you kind of mentioned it already being like the turn you win. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, and so in like a combo deck or something that wins all in one turn, it may be the turn that you actually combo off and win. But Mm -hmm. in an aggro deck, it's probably going to be the point where you've put enough pressure on or dealt enough damage that you just need to get anything else in, basically, to win you the game. It doesn't necessarily have to be the turn you kill your opponent, but if you bring your opponent down to three pretty consistently on turn four, then turn four is your fundamental turn. Because after that, if you can just find some way to get in a little bit extra damage, you'll finish off that game. Right. And if you have a deck that's an aggro deck with zero reach, then it may actually be the the turn where you kill your opponent is what you count as your fundamental turn. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a little bit of reach in your deck frequently, it's just whenever you bring your opponent down to a really low point. Yeah. So like those two seem pretty clear, you know? It's like, oh, this is the turn that I need to get my opponent dead, the combo deck or the aggro deck. But what's a lot right. more nebulous is the fundamental turn for like a control deck. Um, Because that one is very rarely actually the turn where they kill their opponent. What it more often is, is the turn where they stop their opponent. You know what I mean? Um, So like if they're playing against an aggro deck, it's the turn where they play their Wrath of God and kill all their opponent's creatures. And their opponent's left with just scraps left to try to put together a victory. And you've got all your cards that you're you're starting to really play your powerhouse cards now. Yeah. So... Even in a, a deck that's planning on winning on turn 10, the fundamental turn for the deck can still be turn 3, turn 4, turn 5, because that's where they made the really key play. Yeah. I mean, maybe it might be because I haven't played you know the best possible decks in all formats, but in my experience playing control decks, a lot of the time it can be turn 5 because 
turn five is when you actually have enough mana that you can start playing things and leave up your counter mana. Yeah, and I think that what turn it is for a control deck is really is going to depend on the meta they're playing in and the cards they have to attack that meta. Oh yeah, definitely. Because that's what I was saying is like it can be like I think in standard right now it can very much be turn four because there's a four mana wrath and sometimes Mm -hmm. playing that wins you the game. Right. Whereas in some metas you're playing one for one removal spells and counter spells and so it could be turn five where you start playing a removal spell and a counter spell on the same turn. Right. I think maybe a good example of how how this works to to give people something they can really sink their teeth into and how the fundamental turn works for a control deck is like my current standard deck which I haven't made any changes to since Akoria came out, so it's a little bit behind, right? You got but, your Yorions in it. Yeah, it's a it's a blue-white control deck, and so the way I kill my opponent is frequently hitting them with Dream Trawler, right? But I might hit them for lethal on turn 10, 11, 12, something like that. That's not my fundamental turn, though. So you might think, oh, when, when I played that Dream Trawler, then I really had the game locked up. That's my fundamental turn. Like, no, that's turn 6 or 7. Probably not then either, because my Shatter the Sky on turn 4 is where I got into a position where my opponent could no longer win. Yeah, it's everything else after that was just mopping up. Mm -hmm. And your opponent doesn't necessarily know that you have the cards to take them down, so they pay the price of continuing to play. Sorry, I get that ACDC reference in there. (laughs) True. And I think another interesting point is, like you mentioned on the aggro decks, I think a lot of times the fundamental turn, like the fundamental turn for the control deck isn't necessarily the obvious turn, but it is a fairly clear point in the game. I think with the aggro decks, frequently it is a little bit more diffuse. Like your fundamental turn may not be turn four, it might be turn 3.5, because it really depends on which creatures you had and which, how, like what blockers your opponent had or whatever. It's like typically this is the point where I get to that stage, but it's a lot more dependent on uh, the actual board state. Yeah. You know? And so then one of the things that he talks about a little bit when he, he goes into survival recur deck that he was playing yep. in versus high tide. And he talks about how, even if you have a later fundamental turn than your opponent, you can still take that into account when you're making your, your plays and you can make your deck push their fundamental turn back, which yeah. I think is something that I have said to people in not so many words about modern is that it's a turn four format. If you're not winning on turn four, then you need to be doing something to slow your opponent down. And that's basically what he's talking about here, is that his opponent has an earlier fundamental turn than him. So his game plan in that matchup is to do stuff to delay them and make them push that turn back every turn until they get to the point where he's got his fundamental turn and he can win. Because the fundamental turn for High Tide, in his example, was... uh, What did did he say it was? Turn 4? It was turn 4. Yeah, but he keeps pushing that back because his fundamental turn is turn five, right? So he wants to get into a position where he reaches his before they actually get their win off. He isn't necessarily changing the high tide deck so it has a different fundamental turn. He's just making sure they can't actually do their thing on their turn, right? Yeah. And so what that is, the fundamental turn isn't necessarily going to be the same every game in actuality. And But when you're talking about it as a concept, you figure out the turn that is the turn that you most often do the plays that win you the game, even if it's not right. the turn you always do them. Right. Because he talks about how 
some of the decks like they could win on turn three or they could win on turn four but really their fundamental turn was turn four or turn five because that's when they could realistically expect to do that and i think that's pretty common in say modern with the storm deck they have in that deck Mm -hmm. it can win on turn two it can win on turn three a lot more easily than turn two but really it's not expecting to win until turn four and even then, turn four is only if your opponent hasn't done too much to disrupt you. Right. You know what I mean? It's like the, the gold fishing, that deck's fundamental turn is turn four. Maybe. Yeah, like gold fishing, it's pretty good at winning on turn three. Yeah. But it's really four is the turn. Right. And so, like, when you play with your opponent, if they're the one of the things the storm deck is counting on is that your opponent's not going to have the right cards to interact with you because your archetype is not attacked the same way as some other archetypes. Right. And so it's counting on getting to do its thing on turn four is what it's expecting to do. Mm-hmm. And in modern recently, sometimes there's been some decks that they just, they win on turn three and that's made the storm deck not good yeah. just because even if your opponent's not interacting with you, they just win faster, you know? Sure. And so that's a good example of how that analysis can really, you can approach the meta is if you know when your deck usually wins and just right now that's too slow, then it may be a good idea to pick up a different deck. Yeah, and I think what has made this an important concept to me, and I think probably other people are doing this also, it's not something I ever had an occasion to talk to someone about specifically, Mm -hmm. is frequently you can come up with an idea for a deck, right? You you see a couple of cards, and you're like, oh, that would be a really cool deck, right? So you design this deck, and then you're looking at it, and you know, okay, it's it's a modern deck, because... That's, you know, that's where these cards are legal, right? So I'm, I'm going to be playing this in modern. Okay, like, wow, this is this is really cool. This this would definitely be super powerful. But if you can't win the game before turn six, then it's just too slow. Yeah. Usually you can look at your deck, and that's I think that's the terminology that gets used more often than fundamental turn these days, is someone to say your deck is too slow. Uh, but that's really what it means, is it's talking, you're talking about the fundamental turn there. Because in a vacuum... It doesn't matter how many turns you take. It's not slow, fast, whatever. You just, okay, I play these cards and then I win. Yay! That's cool in a vacuum, but when everybody else is winning first, then you're too slow. And what that comes down to is your deck's fundamental turn is turn six, and everyone else's fundamental turns are turns three to five. Yeah, and I think that's what the issue was when I was playing that... uh Bolus at Citadel deck in standard not too long ago. Yeah. Is that my deck was just too slow. It just, it, it's fundamental turn was turn five mm-hmm. and everybody else's in the format was turn four. Yeah. So the format was a turn four format. That was the fundamental turn of the format, but your deck was just slower. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's basically the problem with the clear the land deck that he was talking about in this specific well, article. It sort of is, but. What he's talking about in that article, though, is that his Clear the Land deck, its fundamental turn, basically lined up with the rest of the format. Mm-hmm. But the way the card worked, you just gave your opponent a turn earlier on their fundamental turn in most archetypes. Yeah. There's certain archetypes where you giving them a couple extra lands on turn two is not going to speed them up because they still need time to play their cards. Right. But for the most part, giving them the mana to play their cards earlier is what decks need yeah and so your fundamental turn is turn four which is what everybody else is is in a vacuum but Mm -hmm. if they're playing against you their fundamental turn has become turn three right part of what you're doing is advancing their mana yeah 
Yeah, and and that is interesting as an example. Yeah, and so that's the kind of thing that you kind of got to take into account sometimes as well. Is how is your game plan affecting your opponent's fundamental turn? And a lot more often, what you're going to be able to do is look and see if your game plan is delaying theirs. And if that's the case, then it's okay that your turn is later. Yeah. It's not very often that you're going to be doing a thing where you're accelerating your opponent's fundamental turn. Right. Just inherently by what you're doing. But if you're playing Death Shadow, though, then yeah. you've got to watch out for that kind of thing because you are going to da- deal damage to yourself. And if you're playing against an aggro deck, then you've got to watch out for that. But in that particular case, oftentimes the aggro deck is also accelerating your fundamental turn. Right. So it plays off of itself. And so that's an interesting scenario, but it's something you got to keep an eye out for when playing that style of deck. Yeah. And good ways you can interact with your opponent's fundamental turn if you need to delay it is basically just what we refer to as disruption. We'll frequently just play that role for you if you thought seize them or use any kind of counter magic that can really delay what it is they want to do. Also, sometimes just presenting threats that they have to deal with before they can play theirs that can help delay their fundamental turn. Yeah, and one of the things he mentions in the article is something that we kind of didn't cover when we were covering archetypes and their fundamental turn is like a prison deck. Mm -hmm. The way it works is its fundamental turn is frequently turn two, even though it's a 10-turn win deck, because what they want to do is they want to get their prison in place and get things locked down very early. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they put their, their lock pieces in play, and their fundamental turn is turn two, and Sometimes what that lock does, though, is is it pushes back your opponent's fundamental turn dramatically. Like if you play a Blood Moon, and they just then they have to sit there and wait till they draw the basics that make the colored mana they want to play. Or if you play yeah. a Defense Grid, then they have to sit there and wait till they have you know like is it four extra mana to cast a counter spell on your turn. Or three extra. Three extra mana. Yeah. So it's like if they play a defense grid and your opponent is planning on playing some counter spells and stuff, then you've pushed back their ability to do that by three turns. And so like that deck's fundamental turn is the turn at which they push your fundamental turn back so far that you can't achieve it. It's not necessarily them doing anything that really looks like they've won the game. Right. And then that kind of also leads into some stuff where some deck's way of delaying you, like, say, a Ponza deck or something like that, what they do is they destroy your lands. And so you're mm-hmm. you're basically having to repeat the turn that you took before where you got your land into play that you needed to play your spell. Yeah. And so that's another way that some uh, different ways to interact with the fundamental turn and some different tactics on when their fundamental turn is you know it's like when i got my blood moon into play or something like that a thought just occurred to me Mm -hmm. i remember back in the day when i first started playing i don't know if this is to do with the way just people in my community were playing or is the fact that we were new to the game but people would want to build land destruction decks and their idea in building a land destruction deck was to build a deck where they just constantly destroy their opponent's land so their opponent never has any lands and can't do anything But really, where land destruction is very powerful is if you just get one or two good land destruction spells that you can pull off early, then you set your opponent back really hard. On their fundamental turn, maybe, is turn four, because that's when they have enough mana to play Shatter the Sky, except now you've set them back to turn five. And then if you can do it again later on, then they're set back to turn six. Mm -hmm. And so you are just delaying your opponent's ability to play every time you take out one of their mana sources. It's not that they don't have any mana for the whole game, but just 
how often can you put them back one turn? Yeah, you're just those decks really shine when what it's doing is making your plays more powerful than their plays because you have more lands than them. Right. Not necessarily because they have no lands. It's just you have more because you destroyed theirs. Right. What would you say is the fundamental turn or the ways that you interact with your opponent's fundamental turns in your modern gen deck? I'd really probably say that turn three would be the fundamental turn for that deck because that's when you know kind of how the game is going to go because if you get to stick your planeswalker on turn three and they don't have any way to stop it now then you've basically run away with the game if you played your creature on turn two and he gets to get in for a second attack uncontested then you know that you're going to be okay and the way that deck works is it doesn't actually win the game right there but since it it's basically a uh control deck that controls the game via discard spells and removal yeah not it really controls the board state yeah it's it's a board control deck not a stack control deck right and so it's not gonna win the game on the fundamental turn because it just it just doesn't have any creatures that just kill your opponent right away Mm -hmm. but it also does a good job of delaying your opponent's fundamental turn via discard spells and removal spells and stuff like that and so I would say yeah. that it's probably turn three is the fundamental turn, but since it is one of those decks that has its fundamental turn and then doesn't win for a few turns, it can still lose to some of those turn four decks because they happen to have the right thing at the right time. Sure. So I, I would say it's probably turn three because that's where you're, for the most part, your planeswalkers really come into play or you really get a chance to play a creature because sometimes on turn two, you have to be like, no, I have to kill this other creature before I can play mine, you know? Sure. All right, so where do you think the standard meta is as far as the fundamental turn goes? How? Where does do you want your fundamental turn to be if you want to be competitive in standard right now? Well, I think it's kind of a turn four is where you really want it to be. I think that the sacrifice decks have to get to that point to have enough of the permanence and play that they want to do things with, or some of their cards to have lost summoning sickness, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The control decks, I think they're kind of trying to live to play their shatter the sky and take over the board that way. The fires of invention decks turn four is when they can cast fires of invention. So I think it's, it's yeah. about turn four right now. Some of the aggro decks I think are kind of on 3.5. So this clear the land deck that V is talking about in his article would suffer the same problem for the same reason now as it did then. Yeah, I think so. Its fundamental turn is turn four, but if you were to to do it on turn two, you would advance your opponent's turn by 1.8 to two turns. Yeah, and I think that the... uh, See, we've got also the cycling deck. I think Mm -hmm. that if it plays a flourishing fox on turn one, it can get you kind of low on turns two and three, hitting you with that guy. And then on turn four, it can finish you off with a Zenith player. So that deck probably also, that one I'd probably put at turn 5, but it does have a lot of deck consistency because the deck is just all cycling cards. Yeah. So yeah, I think that that's a, I think that's, I think standard right now is kind of a turn 4 fundamental turn format, but it is also one of those formats where most of the decks with fundamental turns on turn 4 aren't actually winning the game till turn 5 or 6. Sure. Like, the, you're not actually dead. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, they, they won the game on turn 4. But if you can stop that, or you do have a little bit of a chance to come back from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like that's another point to be made, I think, is that while we're talking about the fundamental turn and defining it as the turn where you have essentially won the game, 
If you haven't actually won the game on your fundamental turn, it's possible for someone to come back out from under that. Typically, they won't be able to, because that's the idea of your fundamental turn. But they can. I think that's one of the things that's attractive about combo decks, is like we mentioned at the top, combo decks, essentially, their fundamental turn is the turn they actually win. They actually win on their fundamental turn. Yeah. And it's typically later, which is the thing people don't like about them, but they have a later fundamental turn, but once they get to it, that's it. You have actually lost the game. Yeah. Whereas with the aggro deck and the control deck, a lot of times the fundamental turn is a lot earlier, but there's still a possibility that you you can get out from under that again. Yeah. And that's the kind of how some of the different matchups go, is the control deck and the aggro deck frequently have fundamental turns at about the same time, and the aggro deck will have got the control deck to the point where it's like, okay, we've both had our fundamental turn, who's going to actually finish off the other one first? And the way the control deck finishes off the aggro deck might be they cast an absorb and countered your spell and gained three life, and that finished it off, you know? Right. But they both might reach that point and go, okay, we've reached our point. Am I going to get these last three points of damage in before you get your Dream Trawler in for a, di- a hit, you know? Yeah, well, I think that's interesting. And as with many of our On the Shoulders of Giants article episodes, uh, this I don't think is a concept that, by and large, our listeners won't be familiar with. Maybe there's a few out there who will listen and be like, oh, mind blown, you know? But mostly I think our listeners probably understand this concept, even if they hadn't used this terminology to describe it. Um, but as usual, I think it's always helpful to to think about these things a little bit more in depth, actually consult the basic principles of what we do when we play Magic. And I think it'll be valuable if anyone wants to check out the link in our show notes and go read this article. It's available on Star City Games now. I think it's worth a read. It's actually really short. And I think a lot of times, myself included, like, I know this stuff. But every time we go over it, I think to myself, like, man, I really haven't been thinking about that as much as maybe I should. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that that a lot of times what happens is we get to the point where we understand these concepts. And this is why, like, people say, like, you learn so much more from teaching than from being a student. And people say stuff like that. I think a lot of times it's because once you understand the concept, frequently you will leave it behind. Like, okay, I understand that now. And you go on and you maybe use it, or maybe don't in the future, but you don't consider it anymore because you understand it. And it can be very valuable to, especially once you've gained a lot of other knowledge, to then go back and say, okay, and now this, think about this again, because we can apply it to all these other things we've learned, and it's so much more valuable. Yeah, and you've you've had a lot of experiences where you can think back and go, oh, I should have applied this here, and this is how it would have improved things, and I understand that now. Yeah, or you'd be like, oh, like, I understood this in theory, but now I can see, like, a lot more clearly how it works because I did it. Yep. And so I I think that that's where a lot of the value of these episodes comes from. And I I hope everyone, uh, you know, just enjoys it. And and I think you ought to to go ahead and read this article. Um, Don, do you think there's anything else that you want to make sure we cover about the fundamental turn? Um, I I guess I did mention I wanted to talk about the clear the land thing. And I just really wanted to talk about how Hmm. I think that we kind of covered it. But I just want to say... I think that his analysis on clear the land is very good at demonstrating how speeding up and slowing down the fundamental turn can really affect the game. And so I think that that is a reason to read the article about this specifically rather than just thinking about the concepts, is that I think he does do a really good job of covering that with this card. 
Yeah. Even though that card's no longer relevant. Right. But I mean, I think that's part of why the card may not be relevant anymore, but I think one of the reasons Clear the Land makes such a great example here is because this is why he wrote about the fundamental turn. The card Clear the Land, what it does, is significantly affected by what the fundamental turn is. So he's like, hey, here's a concept that I... I think he basically even said sort of the same thing we tend to do on these types of episodes. Like, hey, here's a thing you probably know about, but I thought maybe we should talk about it. Yeah, I think it's kind of going like, I think people want me to build a deck with this card, and I'm not going to, because this is why, and this is why this card will never be good. Right. Uh, But I I think that about covers it for our kind of rehash of an old article from back when I was actually relevant. Actually, I was never relevant. What am I trying to say? I don't know. Back when I was keeping up with things, you know. Ah, back when you were up on what was relevant. Yeah, there you go. Back when I was hip and cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think that's it for this week. Don, do you think that there's someone out there who might could use a judge before we clear out of here? Judge. Yeah, I think I was going to go over something that is, once again, things that most people probably know, but there's some confusion over exactly how it works. Yeah. And so I thought it might be a good thing to address. Sure. So one thing I want to get out in the open before I cover this is that this is a topic that the way it's been handled in tournaments has changed over the years, and it could change again. So if you're listening to this for some reason in 10 years and you're like, that's not how it works, it might (laughs) have changed again. So, um, at the time of this broadcast, this is how it worked. And if you are listening to this in 10 years, like, awesome, drop us a line. Hopefully our email is still active, and I would love to hear that people are still listening to this. So what I was going to say is, we can cover naming a card whenever a card comes, like, there's plenty of cards that say, whenever this card comes into play, choose a card, and you have to, like, just pick a card name. And the way that works is you have to pick a card that and and you have to be specific enough that people know what card you're talking about you don't have to know the name of the card if your opponent plays karn in their deck right and you just you know that they play that and say this is game two of the match and you go to play your meddling mage that says as he comes into play you choose a card name then players can't cast the chosen card he's like i know he played a karn but i don't remember which one if they only played one Karn, you can say the Karn that you cast last game. Okay. If you have a card like Sorceress Spyglass, you look at their hand and you choose a card name, but what it does is it says activated abilities of the chosen card name can't be activated. You can just point at a card that's in play and just be like, that one. Like if their card's in a foreign language or something like that and you don't know, you can't read it. Sure. I will. <laughs> or situation where, say, your opponent has a companion, right? And... You don't, you don't happen to know the name of it, and it's sitting on their side of the battlefield. You can't read it upside down because, I don't know, whatever. Right? Yeah, I mean... And you're like, oh, in, might that, be in, that card. Might be in their sideboard right now. Yeah, like, I I want to target that card, or choose that card, or whatever. And you, what you're telling me is they can't actually just slap their hand over it and go like, oh, but what what's its name? No, yeah, you can just go the companion that you presented at the beginning of the game, that one. Or something like that. Just as okay. long as it is clear to both players which card you are trying to shut off. Yeah, and I ask because I think where any confusion on this comes from is the fact that typically the way this is phrased on cards is name a card or choose a card name. You know, yeah. 
And and what you're telling me is that you don't actually have to do that literally. No, you don't necessarily have to know every single card. And so one of the reasons this is really talked about is there used to be the policy was you had to name the card specifically enough that people could tell what you were talking about. You couldn't just describe it however you wanted. You had to at least get close enough on the name. And there was a big famous match where somebody played a Borbrigmos Enraged and killed their opponent. And then the next batch, the opponent played Pithing Needle and they named Borbarigmos. And there is a card called Borbarigmos that was legal in the format. Yeah. And so whenever the person played their Borbarigmos Enraged and they wanted to activate the ability, the person's like, no, I named it with Pithing Needle. Call the judge and was like, he just said Borbarigmos. He didn't say Borbarigmos Enraged. And so it didn't fly at the time. But now, uh, yeah, if it's very clear sketch. to both players which card you meant, then that is the card that you named. There could yeah. be some stuff going on. Like, if you have the other Borborygmos in your deck, then you could maybe argue with the judge that you didn't know which one he meant, even though that one doesn't have any activated abilities. Sure. That's what I was going to ask next, was like, as a judge, because, you know, that's part of why we do this segment. Though I guess only really part, but you are actually a, a magic judge. If, you know, you get called over to the table and I'm going like, oh, I didn't understand. Like, how do you handle that? Like, especially if you think it's pretty clear. Like, what, what do you say when the opponent's going like, oh, no, it wasn't clear to me. Well, you just have to separate the players and you just have them both tell you what happened when they named the card. Like, how did you describe the card? Yeah. And if you think that that should have been sufficient, then you kind of got to take a judgment call and be like, okay, do I think that this person is... Being obtuse, do I think that they're just not very good at communicating and they don't understand what the person meant? Or do I think they're trying to cheat? If you think that they're just being kind of closed-minded and they honestly don't think that that was specific enough, then you can just tell them, it was specific enough, you're wrong, this is the card that they named. If you think that it's not specific enough, then obviously you just go, well, yeah, you weren't specific enough, I'm sorry, you named the wrong card. Or you could go, well, you weren't specific enough, And so the card hasn't been named yet. You need to choose a card now, and that will be the named card. But the card they already cast is on the stack. You can't stop that. Okay. You could do that. But if you think that they're just Mm -hmm. trying to lie, then you can just DQ them for cheating. Okay. For example, to to get a bit more in-depth on this, if you don't, uh, say the the Borborygmos example, right? Say I am playing Borborygmos the Enraged, and I'm not playing just Borborygmos, but... My opponent names Borborygmos, and then I'm like, uh, he said Borborygmos, and I, I assumed he meant the card that is actually named that. I mean, then what, you're like, uh, but you're not playing that card, so that wouldn't make sense. But like, well, he doesn't know I'm not playing that card, he doesn't see my list, so I assumed that he thought that I was playing it. Like, yeah, that's when you have to, it's really a judgment call on whether or not you think the person is lying. And the judge just has to judge. Yeah, it's, it's just like... They, they are saying one thing, and the other person is saying another, and you just have to kind of figure out, who do I believe? That's the really the hard part, is whenever it's like, he said, she said kind of thing, and you don't have any people to yeah. stand by and witness, you know? Or if it's a situation where it's purely the person's own account of what happened is the only one you have, it's like, did they understand what he meant? You know? They're the only person that can tell you, did they understand that? Right. And so, if it might be one of those things that's like, if they're in game one and you haven't shown them either Borbrigmos out of your deck yet, and they did it and they're like, oh, I didn't know what he meant, then I am more inclined to go, well, I'm sorry, guy, I guess you weren't specific enough. 
Yeah. But if it's like game two and they've already killed them with that card or the, they've already seen it in their hand or something like that, you know, then I'm more inclined to go sure. like, you knew which card he meant because you've only played one Borborygmos. Yeah. And so even if you could be playing the other one, this is the only one you've played. And it, I think it's very clear that that's the one they meant. Sure. And so I think that's where it comes down is just like kind of analyzing where you are at the table. Like what has happened, you know? Right. And so that's just like one of the things It's just like, a lot of people are used to the old thing where you had to be very specific with the name. You didn't have to have it exactly, mm -hmm. but you had to be pretty specific and have a name. But what yeah. that led to was people calling a judge and saying, hey, I need the card name for the card that does all of these things. And the judge would be like, oh, that's this card. And give them the card name, and they name the card, and then they go on with their match. When really, they could have just told their opponent, I want to name the card that does all of these things. And their opponent could have gone, yeah. oh, that's this card out of my deck. You can name that. Right. And so it's just to basically stop wasting judges' time mm -hmm. and making people be courteous to each other. <laughs> they have made right. it so that if you can describe the card with enough specificity that both players know what you're talking about, that is all you need to do. Right. So now I can say that red and green card that you killed me with, Yeah. I, I, I don't particularly advocate like everyone force meddling mage into their deck, but just... For those who don't know, Meddling Mage turns off companions. As long as he's not your companion, too. Yeah, it's true. Because uh, the Meddling Mage says, like, cards with the chosen name can't be played, right? Uh, I believe it says cast. I think it. I think oh, you can okay. still play cast. lands with the chosen name, as long sure. as you're not casting them. But Meddling Mage turns off anything, really. The reason why it's specifically relevant to companions is you're... You're always going to know a card they have? Yeah. You know the card they have, and it's one of their better cards that they probably are relying on having. Yeah, you know? they've probably so built like, okay. their deck with the expectation of having access to that card, and you can shut off that expectation. Right. And they've told you right at the beginning of the game what it was. Yep. You know? So, you're like, ah, oh, that one. And, and again, like you were saying, even if you don't remember the card name... You can just say the companion you revealed. Yeah, your companion. <laughs> probably all you have to say. Yep. Cool, man. Well, do you think that there's anything else that we ought to cover before we call it a night? Oh, I think it's kind of funny. Um, in the article, he was talking about how his deck beat High Tide. And one of the things he said is he played five Red Elemental Blast. He said he played five? Yeah. I'm assuming that's because he played some mixture of Red Elemental Blast and Pyroblast. Ah. But I think that that's an interesting comment in his article that he does not actually explain in the article. Right. He just says that he played five Red Elemental. That's just what he did. <laughs> yeah, that is what it says. <laughs> And I just thought that was a interesting <laughs> tactic. I'll just play five of these, you know? Yeah. But I'm assuming it's because he, he was saying five red elemental blast effects, and he had some mixture sure. between red blast and pyroblast. And, you know, I think at the time, everybody knew that that's what he was talking about. Yeah, it's funny. Red elemental blast, for those who aren't aware, is a instant for a red. And it says, choose one, counter target blue spell, or destroy target blue permanent. And pyroblast... Is, is Pyroblast just Pyroblast says, thing? choose one, it... destroy target permanent if it is blue, or counter target spell if it is blue. The different wording okay. being that you can cast Pyroblast targeting any spell or permanent, it just only does anything to it if it's blue. Whereas Red Elemental Blast, you have to have a blue permanent or spell to target. Sure. So by and large, they're functionally identical. Yeah. But, cool deal. We don't have any feedback for this episode, but I want to let everyone know that if they would like to reach the show, we are still looking forward to hearing from you. We... Still interested in your rogue deck ideas for us to try out on Arena. And you can reach us at planeswalkerspod at enginewithin.com. And Donovan, I guess if uh, 
if anybody's looking to get in touch with you to ask you some more about how Meddling Mage works or to tell you why Zirda the Dawn Waker is going to be the best companion in Standard, uh, where can they find you? Well, starting tomorrow, which will be before this podcast airs, you'll be able to find me at Boardwalk Games in North Dallas again. Sweet. And then um, you can find me on the interwebs on the, the, the Twitter sphere under uh, day underscore Donovan. Yeah, at day underscore Yeah, that Donovan. one. Cool. And if you want to hear more from me, I am at Injumathin on the Twitters. Or you listen to our other podcast. It's called The List. All the games eventually. And you can find that, you know, on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. That's a show all about video games. Uh, Patreon. Patreon.com slash Injumathin. Public. That's a thing. Uh, probably easiest to find if you go to Injumathin.com. All our links to our Public store. Yeah. You can, you can get merch, which is cool. And, uh... Other things, plugs, Donovan, do you have anything else that you would like to plug? No, no, well, not, not, not here. All right, cool. Well, then let's, let's hop off and you can go plug whatever it is that you want privacy. Like, God, this is bad. You know, I don't really care about what you're plugging. <laughs> could listen to our other podcast podcast i'm wording so bad today you've just become middle european for a bit podcast editing will happen at some point and make all of this work so i'm just gonna rely on that from here on out donovan